Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 2, we've been talking about the subject of suffering as we've finished the book of Romans and gone into the book of Job for these couple of these two or three weeks possibly. A part of God's sovereign purpose is suffering. And the purpose of suffering as we have looked in the book of Job, the earliest written book of the whole Bible in terms of time, doesn't encapsulate the beginning of the world as Moses' book of Genesis did, but it is perhaps written before that time, before the time of Moses, the earliest and first book that was ever written, the book of Job, outlining for us an event regarding a godly man event in his life regarding the subject of suffering and how he dealt with it. Job chapter 2, as we looked at chapter 1 last week, and in the book of Job chapter 2, verse 1, it reads, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited him, uh, me against him, to ruin him without cause. Satan answered and the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted their eyes at a distance, did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon this time. Our Lord in heaven, we pray that you would help us to have a heart of compassion, a heart of sensitivity towards those who are suffering, and a heart that is open, Father, that we might know your desires for our lives. As we look into your word, Lord, open our eyes that we may see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About six years ago, there was an event that happened. I don't know if you remember what happened. 2001, there was an article written in the Capital Journal of Holton. Early on, it reads, Veronica Ronnie, she was called Bowers, knew she wanted to be a missionary teacher. On Friday, she died, fulfilling the ambition in an airplane in Peru. Bowers, 35 of Muskegon, Michigan, and her seven-month-old daughter, Charity, were killed when a Peruvian Air Force jet shot down a single-engine plane carrying American missionaries over the Amazon jungle. The plane had been mistaken for one carrying illegal drugs. The pilot was wounded, but Bauer's husband, Jim, 37, and their six-year-old son, Corey, weren't injured. Ronnie Bowers had wanted to become a missionary teacher ever since she was about 12 years old. Desbian said. She met her husband, the son of missionaries in South America in college, and they clicked because of their missionary aspirations. In Friday's plane incident, Ronnie Bowers was reportedly holding her daughter in her lap when a bullet struck her in the back, killing both her and the child, unquote. I remember hearing the news six years ago, thinking about the tragedy and thinking, how does this type of thing further the kingdom of God? Here's somebody who has dedicated their life to reaching others and to giving themselves to serving the Lord, and yet this tragic thing happens. Why does something like this happen? Doesn't it hinder the work of God? And the answer is no. There are reasons behind things that happen, though they might not be known to us It's amazing because I remember watching World News that night. I usually watch NBC Nightly News, 6 o'clock, and it was major headline news that day, made the evening news. They had the opportunity to interview her husband on World News, which reaches millions of people, viewers across the nation. And there, Tom Brokaw, The interview of the missionary enabled him to tell millions of viewers what they were doing, why they were there, the importance of Christ. And what other event would have been when such a thing happened, an incredible testimony that he had to spread the good news of Christ, the hope that people have because of Jesus, all at one time. There's a purpose behind things that happen, though we don't know why. The inspiration that millions of people have had to pursue things that matter for eternity. When the five missionaries were killed in Ecuador, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, and so on and so forth, inspired many to give their lives as well, to reach those who don't know Christ. And most of the time, at the time, we have no idea why things happen, but we know that it is for ultimately for what? Our ultimate good and God's glory, though we may not see it at that time. Last week, when we viewed a profile of Job in Job chapter 1, We saw, too, something that happened to him. And from his perspective, he had no clue what was going on. No clue. And yet this man who was the greatest man in the East had said, man who was humble, a man who was wealthy and respected, who had influence, who had ten children who would get along and they would celebrate together. 
He was blameless, even in God's eyes. Satan comes before God and accuses God in chapter 1. And he says, God, the only reason he follows you is because you give him all of these things. He's like a rice Christian. That's what he is. But take that away from him. And his faith will fall too. Because faith is nothing but a sham, God. God knows that Job's faith is true and every true believer's faith will not deny God the true, genuine faith. So he allows Satan to test him every way and so in one day, one moment in time, he loses all that he owns, all of his his livestock, all of his servants, and a wind blows and collapses the house where all of his children were ten children. Job's response was to mourn, but he humbly recognized God. And what does it say? It said in verse 20, He fell to the ground when he had lost all these things and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. So we come to chapter 2. When Satan comes once again with the sons of God, which are the angelic hosts, they come and present themselves before God. And here Satan is tagging along and God says to him, where have you been? And he says, I've been roaming about the earth. The same dialogue, scene two, as it were, the same dialogue. Lord said to him, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man turning away from evil and he still holds fast to his integrity. What do you think of that, Satan? But true to his title, and remember, Satan is a title, not his name. It's a title and once again he accuses God. He says what? Look, God, the only reason why he's faithful is because you've been sheltering him. Skin for skin, yet all that a man he'll give for his life, yet put forth your hand now and touch his bone and flesh. He will curse you to your face. In other words, afflict him. Afflict his health, take away his health, take away his well-being, and I'll show you that faith is a sham. There's nothing but a joke. Now, it's true that some people, some people's faith is only a facade and they only follow God because of what God can give them. And that's not too uncommon in our culture that people will follow God as long as everything is okay. But once difficulties come, they run. That's how it has been throughout history. They believe that God is there to make them healthy or wealthy or prosperous, that I'll have a good life, that if I receive Christ, I'll receive nothing but good things in life. Job's faith was genuine and his faith was strong like a diamond that retains its qualities when difficult times come and God wants to show him what genuine faith looks like. So he allows Satan to physically afflict Job. He allows Satan to physically afflict him without taking his life to demonstrate, you see, to demonstrate the truth that all genuine faith will persevere till the end. All genuine faith will persevere to the end. Genuine faith does not turn and deny God. And that's the point that God wants to prove to Satan. All genuine faith is called the perseverance of the saints or one that has eternal security that will continue to be faithful and continue to shine 
Though there might be times of stumbling in a Christian's life or in a believer's life, that faith will still be very real and will not outrightly deny the God that they have given their life to. And Job has no idea that this dialogue is occurring in heaven. And so here we see, and one of the things that, that, that is made here in this first dialogue is that we realize, you know, when things are going on with us, there are things going on in heaven. There's a reason why things happen. There's a sovereign purpose behind suffering. There's a sovereign purpose ultimately for the glory of God and for our ultimate good. Somehow, we may never ever know. But we trust that we serve and we live for a good God. For his glory. So, what happens in verse 7 to 10? We see Job's integrity despite physical suffering. The Bible says that Satan comes and he afflicts Job with these sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Job took on the place that says here he went to scrape himself with, with a potsherd. This is so miserable. He went to scrape himself. He sat among the ashes. He took his place outside the city. That's what lepers would do. They would go. Leprosy, which would be a very visible disease. They would go outside the city. It was considered very dangerous. And so he'd go outside the city and sit on ashes. And here he would. He would scrape himself with pottery to alleviate the, 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 un, the discomfort that he was facing. You can imagine what it might have been like. Here you are, your, your, your body is covered with boils and sores, open wounds that perhaps even bleed. And the discomfort is continually there and it's painful. It's painful, so painful. In verse thir- the, the last verse, verse 31, his friends come. Verse 13, his friends come and they see that his pain is very great. And that particular word refers not to his emotional suffering, but it refers to the fact that his physical suffering was very serious and it was increasing. I mean, they didn't have anything like Benadryl or some type of, you know, morphine to alleviate his suffering. There he just scraped his sores with pottery and he sat there, sat there in misery for 24 hours a day, and he lost everything that he owned. He had lost everything. It was miserable, and invisibly so. Now Mrs. Job comes on the scene. Understandably, she has lost ten children too. She lost all of her children, all of her possessions were gone, and she is likely in shock as well, but that doesn't excuse her her comment, her suggestion during this time of extreme difficulty. When she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. In other words, she must have been thinking, you're so miserable and you've lost everything. It's better for you to die and for me to die perhaps as well. Why do you still hold on to God? God doesn't allow terrible things to happen to good people. Constant pain and suffering. Look at all of this calamity. There's no relief. There's no hope. Your best chance for any relief is to take your own life. Commit suicide by cursing God and let God... Take your life. Notice she didn't deny the reality of God. But her suggestion is a way of escape. So in verse 10, he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? 
In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And in this short interchange, we learn at least three things. Number one, that worldly wisdom is foolish. Worldly wisdom is foolish. The wisdom of the world says, you know what? Look at how you're going to live. You've got nothing. You lost everything. You're in constant pain. You, 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 you can't do everything that you've dreamed of doing. You're such an inconvenience to the people around you. You're living in constant suffering. You should end your life. Or that child will live with a disability for the rest of their life. So do the responsible thing and abort that child. Or that elderly parent will just drain you emotionally. Why don't you do the compassionate thing and end their life early? What, what type of advice comes from the world that comes with a view that is devoid of the purposes and the presence of God where here Job was afflicted? Well, the world view is one where God is absent and do not what is best to honor God, but do what is best for you. Do what is best considering the circumstances, not what pleases God. Worldly wisdom is foolishness. Secondly, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign so we can accept both trials and blessings. As we noted earlier, God is involved in allowing things to happen. God is involved by allowing Satan to wreak havoc upon his life. God allows him to. And Satan can't do anything, remember. Satan cannot do anything to you unless God so allows him to. And so God allows things to occur. And God is still in control and He always will be. We might not ever know what those purposes are when we're having a difficult time. We may never know what God's ultimate plan is. But rather than trying to find out who is to blame, whom should I sue, who should take the fall for this, then focusing on those types of things, but to focus on surrendering our life to God and accepting both blessings and trials in life, to forgive when we've been wronged and asking ourselves, what can I learn? What can I learn from God? And how can I take the situation that I'm in to shine even brighter? For dark is the night sometimes, but brighter the light of our life when we shine for God in those difficult circumstances. How can I respond in a God-honoring way that will bring glory to God in my suffering? What can I do? I've visited the hospital many times for various people over the years, even before I was a pastor. And some of the people, they would just be such a blessing. I remember one woman, she would, she would be dying and she was probably going to die in a few days or whatnot. But the testimony that came from her friends that would visit her, whoever it was, was that what? She was always asking about them and how they were doing and her Christian testimony was strong and how her faith in the Lord was strong and how she would encourage others even in the last days of her life. How can I respond and shine for God when things are so discouraging and the world would say, you know what, just give it up. Thirdly, keep our integrity as Job did. Keep our integrity and guard ourselves against sin. I mean, having an integrity means to be upright, to be moral, or to be morally sound. Doing what is right despite the circumstances. 
Doing what is right before God. I mean, whether it was losing one's possessions or losing one's children or losing one's health or whatever. Job did did what was right. He kept his integrity. One who was tried and true before God. And he did not sin. Sin with love for nothing more than when you're having a difficult time to defect, to compromise, to say, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm going to go over to the other side. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do what I think is best for me to prove that he's right and God is wrong and that you should live the way you want to live and sin. I mean, it's easy to compromise our integrity and say to ourselves, well, under these circumstances, everyone would understand. But a person with a high degree of integrity doesn't compromise. and They will do what is right despite the circumstances, despite the consequences, despite the suffering that they need to endure. And sometimes, as we've been discussing in our Sunday Bible class about the subject of euthanasia, even in those times, doing what is right can be a difficult thing to discern. And sometimes those decisions are very difficult and sometimes it's not very clear what is right and what is wrong. But whatever we do, may our desire be, I do it because the Lord would be honored by what I do. I want to do it because I want to please God. I want to do it because God would be blessed by what I decide to do in those difficult decisions. And everyone's decision in some of those circumstances may be different. But it says here that Job, even in his difficulty, didn't sin with his lips. And why does it say that? I believe it says that because what comes out of the heart is expressed in the mouth. As the New Testament says, right? What one says extends from the heart. And so he did not sin in his speech. But here, he rebukes his wife and tells her, you speak as a foolish woman would speak. I'm not going to curse God and die. No, I'm not. God is sovereign. Shall we accept adversity? Shall we not accept good from God and not accept adversity? God is sovereign. Thirdly, we see his friends come. His friends come to comfort him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment and they made an appointment to come together. And they heard about their friend's suffering. Three of them came to console him, to comfort him. And what they saw when they saw Job in a distance was way beyond what they had anticipated. For his sores and his boils were so serious that his face was deformed. He was unrecognizable. They didn't even recognize the guy who was sitting on the ashes as Job. And when they saw him, perhaps scraping his sores there, they wept and they cried and they tore their robes and they threw ashes on their heads. That was a custom that was done for those who were devastated or even those who were dying or who had died, who had suffered complete disaster. That was a type of of serious mourning that they went into. So we see by their example as well, at least two things that we can learn. One is that they gave of their time. They gave of their time to visit. Whether it's a funeral, whether it's a disaster, they took their personal time to spend with someone who is suffering. I mean, one of the things lost in our culture in our day is that 
Sometimes we fail to take the time. We're so busy with our own things. We don't want to be around people who are sad or we don't want to be around people who are suffering. But relationships are more important than time. Relationships are more important than time and sometimes our personal lives, our personal plans need to be set aside so that we can be people of compassion. And remember, compassion, biblical compassion, is not simply pity where you feel sorry for someone, but compassion has action that is linked to it. You see someone on TV, a little child, and they're asking for donations or whatever it might be. Compassion says, I'm going to give versus pity, meaning I feel sorry for someone. We're to have compassion for people, to give of our time, to not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but to weep with those who weep. Isn't it funny that parties or celebrations are so much more well attended than funerals? In a funeral, when I was a boy, I used to try and go to all the funerals that I could because I thought to myself, the scriptures say, weep with those who weep. And wouldn't it be very, very sad if there was some sort of funeral and somebody passed away and there was just their family and no one else came to cry with them? Reminds me a lot, too, of lessons where life is short. Life is short, even in death. I mean, sometimes we try and protect kids from seeing and knowing about what death is because it's scary sometimes. And I realize various kids have various sensitivities and that's a judgment call for the parents. But it was very much real in the olden days when they would build, you see, they would build the cemeteries right outside the church. So every day that you would, every week that you'd go to church, you'd pass by all the tombstones right in the churchyard. Secondly, sometimes, as his friends did, saying little or nothing is the best. Saying little or nothing is the best. His friends came and they wept and they sat with him for seven days and they didn't say anything. The custom of that time, it would be very rude, considered bad taste to speak before the sufferer spoke. But they came and they wept and they sat there. A whole week of their life they spent with their good friend. So when you visit somebody... Don't necessarily feel that you have to have all the things to say. Don't feel that you have to fill all of the empty space or fill all the empty time sometimes. In fact, sometimes talking too much, dominating discussion, making assumptions, trying to figure out why things happened or whatnot, or minimizing the problem does worse to the problem. In our culture, we need to remember that sometimes it is good simply to go to comfort and to be there. Saying little or saying nothing sometimes is good. Job's friends did what was good. They gave of their time. They empathized. They mourned with him. Initially, they didn't speak inappropriately. Sometimes we don't know why things happen. We don't know why suffering occurs. We don't know, for instance, why just a few weeks ago Koti Hu, who is the worship leader, one of the worship leaders at, at Westminster Chapel up there, was stopped at one of those metered, metered on-ramps to the freeway. And how his, his car, how his car was, was hit in the back by a pickup truck. And how a speaker that was unattached in his car flew and hit his neck and now he's paralyzed from the neck down. It's going through rehab, but we do know that his, from his 
from the church website blog that even in rehabilitation he has such a positive spirit. He has a positive testimony and that's how it is. The most recent event, the miners that are trapped nearly 2,000 feet below the ground. Suffering is something that doesn't escape us in life. And we all choose, though, how we will respond to suffering. When it comes to hard times, how do we respond? Difficulties that we face. We try and fix the problem ourselves. That's how many people do it. We worry, become anxious. We cast our cares upon God because He cares for us. Seeking to have a testimony, even the most difficult times. I mean, the things that Job went through was far beyond anything you and I will probably ever suffer. But he worshipped God and he didn't succumb to worldly wisdom or the foolishness of advice that he would receive. He didn't sin against God. I read last week something written by Monica Dickens in Miracles of Courage about a little story about a little boy. His name was David. A little two-year-old boy with leukemia. It was taken by his mother. His mother's name was Deborah. To the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston to see Dr. John Truman. He specialized in treating children. Children with cancer and various blood diseases. And his prognosis wasn't very good. He said, quote, he has a 50-50 chance. There were countless clinic visits the blood tests, the intravenous drugs on this little two-year-old boy. The fear and the pain and mother's ordeal, probably as bad as the child's, she writes. But David never cried in the waiting room, although his friends in the clinic had to hurt him and stick needles in him or whatever it was that he had to do. But he also always ran ahead of his mother when they came to the clinic because he knew that he would receive a great welcome and smile from the people that he had to be treated by. It was treated all year long. It was age three, though. They determined that this little boy had to have a spinal tap, which is a painful procedure, no matter what age you are. And it explained to him that when he was sick, Dr. Truman had to do something to make him better. His mother said, quote, If it hurts, remember, it's because he loves you. The procedure was horrendous for this little three-year-old boy. They wrote that it took three nurses to hold little David still while he yelled and he sobbed and he struggled. And when it was almost over, she writes, the tiny boy, quote, soaked in sweat and tears, looked up at the doctor and gasped, Thank you, Dr. Tuman, for my hurting, unquote. There's a purpose behind things that happen to us and the things that happen to our friends and people that we know. But it's for God's glory and the purposes are often beyond us. But whatever it is, we're to be faithful and to obey and to think to ourselves, how can I shine in times like this and still say to the Lord, thank you, Lord, for my hurting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, many times we don't understand for it is beyond us, your purposes and your plan. For your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And many times in the future, perhaps even soon, we may have to make difficult decisions. But we pray, Father, that whatever we decide may it be to your glory, may it be in obedience to you, 
May we do it to please you in all that we do. And Father, I pray that may we say, even when we suffer, thank you, Lord, for our suffering. For it refines our hearts and our lives like fire. That, Father, we might come to shine brightly for you just as a clay pot would turn to ceramic because of the fires that it's put in through. So, Father, mold us and make us. Discipline us, Father, and may we, Father, be ever faithful during times of suffering. In Jesus' precious name, amen.